Well, today we continue our series, Comeback Stories, that we began last week at church. Again, I don't know about you, but I love a good comeback story, be it a movie, a book, or a real-life story. There's something so incredibly encouraging and uplifting about hearing uh, about how people, it just looks like things are completely down and out, and all hope is lost, and then all of a sudden there's an incredible turnaround and a happy ending. It rekindles hope within our own hearts that comebacks do happen, turnarounds do happen. And so in this series entitled Comeback Stories, we're going to be delving into a few different comeback stories uh, within the Bible um, and, and we're just exploring this whole theme of comeback in scripture and we're really believing that God's going to be speaking to our hearts and encouraging us so that whatever comes our way in 2022 whatever setback, setbacks we may encounter we would have a hope burning bright within our hearts to believe that God is with us and God is well able to turn it around for good according to his purposes in our lives. He is the God of the comeback and he is faithful to us in every season. Now last week we looked um, at uh, scripture from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament that sort of talked around how coming back to God and simply being back in that place of intimacy and dedication to him is the starting point for any journey from setback to comeback. Today we're going to dig into um, what I believe is one of the most incredible uh, comeback stories in scripture from the Old Testament about a man by the name of Joseph. Uh, if you've been following along with us in our Bible in a year reading plan, this story will be relatively fresh in your minds as we've been reading about it over the past week or so. But uh, here's a bit of a recap around Joseph's story, some of the key events that happened uh, in his life. We read about how Jacob the patriarch had 12 sons, but we're told that Joseph was his favourite. There was considerable tension between Joseph and his other brothers because of his father's favouritism. Think Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that great musical. There's this, uh, what's communicated within scripture is that Jacob the father bestowed upon Joseph this coat of many colours that set him apart clearly and visually from his brothers. And brothers being brothers, they didn't actually take too kindly to that. We're clearly told that Joseph's brothers hated him. One day, Jacob sends Joseph on, off on an errand to see how his brothers are doing in grazing the sheep. That was their duty. But when his brothers saw Joseph coming from a distance, it says that they plotted to kill him. They softened somewhat in their stance and instead they chucked Joseph down a dry well and then sold him off as a slave to some Ishmaelite traders. Nice family, eh? Thus began a series of significant setbacks for the young man Joseph. He was around 17 years of age at the time. He's sold into slavery, he's dragged away from his homeland, his family and all that he's familiar with. His dreams are in tatters. He's a slave in the nation of Egypt. However, in Egypt, things begin to turn around for Joseph. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 to 6. It said, The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now that's quite a turnaround which is being described there in Joseph's circumstances, isn't it? Though he's still a slave in a foreign country, it really does seem as though things are beginning to turn around for him. But just when you think the comeback story is really ramping up, yeah, wait, there's some more setbacks on the way. Sorry, Joseph. Now, Potiphar, Joseph's master, his wife took a fancy to Joseph. And over a period of time, she essentially is trying to seduce Joseph into sleeping with her. She's a real smooth operator, Potiphar's wife. And she uses that timeless romantic pickup line, come to bed with me. And again and again and again, she's trying to corner Joseph. She's trying to maneuver things so that she gets him alone. But again and again, Joseph resists the temptation. And and we read about this situation one day where again, Potiphar's wife is trying it on again. And on this particular day, Joseph uh, runs away. He's just, just getting out of there. And he leaves his coat in her hand. And then Potiphar's wife is so enraged that she turns it around and then accuses Joseph of being the one to try and take advantage of her. And so the end result is that Joseph is thrown into, into prison on these completely false charges. So again, just when the story seems to be turning around, oh wait, there's another massive setback. Now sometime later when Joseph's still in the prison there, two officials of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, are thrown into the same prison as Joseph the cupbearer and the baker. Now they both, on this one particular day, they have these really perplexing dreams that they're not able to understand. God gives Joseph the interpretation to these dreams, which he shares with the cupbearer and the baker. Sorry, He says the cupbearer will be restored to his position of prominence, but the baker, unfortunately, will be executed. Now, within just a few days, events transpire exactly as Joseph had said. The cupbearer is restored to his position. The baker is executed. But Joseph, he's just still left in prison. Now, two whole years later, we're told, Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt, he has a perplexing dream that he's not able to understand. And it just so happens that the cupbearer who had been in prison with Joseph is there and he kind of thinks, ah, a dream that's perplexing, that's hard to understand. Hang on, I've been in this situation before. And he says to Pharaoh, hey, I know this guy who was in prison with me who was able to interpret and understand this perplexing dream that I had. Maybe he can help you out. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph to be pulled out of the prison. They clean him up, shave him off, get him suitable for the presence of Pharaoh. And sure enough, Joseph, through God's help and enabling, is able to interpret and provide understanding to Pharaoh about this dream that God had given him. Now Pharaoh was so pleased that Joseph had been able to help him out that he he puts in action an incredible response. Check this out in Genesis chapter 41. It says that Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. 
You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So essentially, it's a whirlwind turnaround. Joseph is plucked from the prison, and now he's the second most powerful person in the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh also gives him a wife, and for seven years, Joseph is entrusted with preparing the land of Egypt for the famine that is to come. Two sons are born to Joseph during this time. He's now got a wife, he's got kids, he's got a great job, a position of influence, he's got wealth and possessions. It'd be really tempting to stop there and define Joseph's comeback in purely materialistic terms. But what I believe is actually the most significant aspect of this comeback story really only begins to ramp up at this point in the narrative. Because suddenly Joseph's brothers are back on the scene. Yes, these are the same brothers who wanted to kill him, but settled for chucking him down a dry well and then selling him off as a slave. Yet those brothers, they're back on the scene. See, the famine has affected the whole Middle Eastern region, including the land of Canaan, where Joseph's father and his brothers and their families are still living. Now, word has got around the surrounding nations that there is grain to be purchased in Egypt. And so Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to find some food so that they're able to uh, survive this um, incredibly significant event, this famine. Remember, they have no idea that Joseph is in Egypt, let alone that he's ascended to this position of prominence. So his brothers turn up, and, and for a time, Joseph continues to hide his identity. Again, he's speaking the Egyptian language. He's dressed as an Egyptian. His brothers, though they come before him to request food relief, essentially, they don't recognize him. But Joseph recognized them. And eventually, he reveals his identity to his brothers. We read in chapter 45, verses 4 to 7, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. See, when we think about Joseph's story as a comeback story, it's more than just the fact that it's rags to riches, that he was in prison and then he's prominent. It's more than that. It's this incredible story of reconciliation. It's an amazing story of healing and of God bringing together people who you look at it and go, man, there's no way that those parties are ever going to be reconciled. But it's also the incredible story of how God in his faithfulness and his power continued to outwork his purposes and plans despite the brokenness of humankind, despite the, all the, 
the dysfunction that often characterizes our own lives and our families, how encouraging is it to see in the Joseph story that God is well able to fulfill his purposes even in the midst of life's dysfunction and hurts and sufferings. It's an incredible comeback story. So what can we take from Joseph's story of an incredible comeback and, and apply or draw relevance from um, for our own lives today and, and the different setbacks that we face? How can we respond? Um, again, a couple of thoughts to share with you this morning before we close. Firstly, I think we see in Joseph's story the importance of, of learning humility and remembering to live with an attitude of humility both before God and before other people. James 4, 6 in the New Testament says it in these terms. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Another translation says that God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Again, the reality is that we all need the grace and the favour of God in our lives each day. And humility is so important. It's a key that unlocks that flow of God's grace, his favour, his supernatural, enabling, his sustaining grace on a daily basis in our lives. See, Joseph is depicted as an incredibly arrogant young man when we first encounter him in his story. When he shared with his brothers about this incredible dream that he'd had, we see so much pride in his words. In Genesis 37, we read this. It says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. See, what I think is significant to see here is that Joseph's dream was absolutely from God. The narrative as it unfolds, reinforces that. We see that, yes, there was a time coming 20 years in the future from this point in the story where Joseph's brothers did indeed bow down before him after Joseph had ascended to this position of prominence in Egypt. But So the problem wasn't with the dream. The issue was with how Joseph went about sharing it with his brothers with a real note of pride and of arrogance and superiority that really rubbed his brothers up the wrong way and didn't do anything to negate the already festering relationship that existed between them. Joseph loved the thought of being superior over his brothers and he really was drawing attention to that in the way that he described this dream. You know, sometimes when we carry dreams in our hearts, it's better to actually keep them to ourselves because the way that we share it with other people can come across as very proud. It can be misunderstood. That's just another little note of caution there. We all in reality are like Joseph, where we need to learn and relearn and keep remembering the importance of living, not with pride or arrogance or any sense of superiority, but with a heart attitude of humility, both before God and other people. You know, our, um, our four-year-old son, Conway, he is just at a stage in his life where he is confident to a fault. 
late last year he had his preschool athletics day and, and he did pretty well. Um, he, he got second in the sprint and he won the high jump and the long jump and the beanbag throw, which was kind of like this shot put. So I was really proud watching him and he did fantastic. He was so proud of his medals and, and I sort of thought, this is great. He's really seemed to be into athletics. He's showing a little bit of uh, aptitude for it. So maybe he'll be interested in uh, joining an athletics club. So I, I floated the idea with Conway and said, hey Conway, um, you seem to really enjoy the athletics. Would you, um, would you maybe like to join a club and then you can keep practicing those different athletic disciplines and you can keep improving and getting faster and stronger and jump higher and further and all this. I was really trying to sell it to him, obviously. And his response kind of cracked me up. He said, nah, I don't want to do that, Dad. I don't need to. I'm already the best at athletics. See my medals? And I was like, okay then. A little bit of pride kicking in there, maybe? And it's, it's a similar thing when it comes to swimming with Conway. Now, Conway cannot swim. He's four years old, um, but he loves the water. And so we take him to the swimming pool. He's all confidence and no ability at all, which is a scary combination for mum and dad who are there supervising. He will jump into the pool with no fear whatsoever. He can't float. He can't swim. So you've really got to have eyes in the back of your head. Uh, now, it's kind of cool and kind of endearing that he's so self-assured at such a young age. But somewhere along the line, you can't help but think that the young lad is going to need to learn a little bit of humility to balance out that self-assurance. But truth be told again, we're all a little bit like Conway and all a bit like Joseph. We all need to learn and keep on learning and hold to the importance of humility before God and before other people in the way that we live our lives. Can I encourage you to keep seeking intentionally to reinforce humility in the way that you live? A couple of practical ways we can do this. I encourage you to choose intentionally to do something every day that you know there's this part of it, you, that's tempted to feel that such things are below you. That could be something at work, it could be something at home. The willingness to do things that we maybe feel are below us is a way of really intentionally acting in the opposite spirit and saying, do you know what, I'm not going to allow this sense of pride or superiority or um, entitlement to take root in my heart. I am going to choose humility and choose service. Can I encourage you to maintain those spiritual disciplines of time with God, reading his word, worshipping him, praying each day, not as just rules to follow, but as very practical ways of expressing our dependence on God each day and recognising that we need to hear from him, we need to connect with him in order to get through our day and live the life that he's calling us to. Can I encourage you to own up to your mistakes as a habit in your life, not just to yourself, but also to other people. Be willing to say sorry. It's about acknowledging our imperfections, and it's a real kick in the guts to any lingering sense of pride or superiority or any sense that we've got it all together in our own lives. Be quick to ask for forgiveness. Be quick to apologize. And as much as that um, keeps our relationships healthy and functional, it actually is a safeguard against pride, again, taking root in our hearts. 
You know, as we choose a lifestyle of humility each day, we can know that we're choosing the Jesus way. See, Jesus, the Son of Man, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. As his followers, we are called to likewise adopt this radical life of service to God and service to other people. He gives grace to the humble, and we need that grace every day. We're especially mindful of it, I think, when we're facing the setbacks in life. Our setbacks, our challenges, and our mountains have a wonderful way of reminding us that we need God. It's one of the most significant blessings that can come from the most difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in in life. They steer us back to God. They remind us that we need him. That truth is true whether things are going well or whether life is a complete train wreck. But I encourage you again, let's be a people of humility, knowing that we need God's grace to flow in our lives every day if we're to ever see setbacks turned around into comebacks. The final thing I love in the story of Joseph's comeback is that it reminds us again of the importance of modelling integrity. Integrity. You know, I'm really amazed throughout the narrative of Joseph's life with the way that in the midst of some really dark times and some significant setbacks, he pretty consistently models the choice of integrity. Even when he was a slave, his master in Egypt entrusts him with everything. You don't do that with a shoddy, lazy, dishonest slave, do you? He chose integrity, honesty, diligence. He developed a reputation over time that opened up opportunities for him in his future. Again, when his master's wife repeatedly tries to seduce him, again and again he chose the path of integrity, though it would have been easy to give in to that temptation, thinking no one's ever going to know, this would just be our little secret. He refused to cave to the temptation. Even when he was falsely accused and thrown into prison, he was given responsibility for everything that was done there. When he was promoted later on to the second highest rank in the land of Egypt, we see him again working with all diligence, not to feather his own nest, not to abuse the position of power he'd been given, or to slack off now that life was relatively cushy. No, he's working hard to serve his family, to serve the nation, and preparing for the impending famine. Can I encourage you to choose integrity every day? Pay attention to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in the little everyday unspectacular details of life. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, it says this, in chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, it says, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Can I encourage you to choose integrity, choose honesty, choose diligence, especially when no one is looking. 
It's easy to cut corners. It's easy to make little compromises, thinking, oh, what does it matter? It's just me. No one else cares or notices anyway. But friends, we need to remember that God is always with us. And as we do our best to actually listen to him and allow him to be the one to lead us, he will consistently lead us to choose the right thing irrespective of who's around, irrespective of what rewards or recognition may come our way. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake and for our good. But the responsibility lies with us, like Joseph, to be a people who say, God, each day I want to be a person who doesn't just go with the flow in the culture, in my workplace, or, or in my class, or wherever it is, where even if everyone else is cutting corners, or slacking off, or stealing the office pens, or you know, whatever it is, God, would you help me to be a person who makes a lifestyle of choosing integrity? You know, I really believe when we reflect on Joseph and his incredible turnaround, that it was his commitment to choosing to do the right thing, even at the times where, especially at the times where no one was watching, that ultimately led to God honoring him and opening up opportunities, leading him into his future, and ultimately turning around all those setbacks into incredible comebacks. I can't promise you that if you choose integrity this week, that all of your problems are going to be solved and that life is going to be wonderful. Again, we recognize in Joseph's story that, hey, it took 20 plus years for the the family dysfunction and the breakdown of relationships to actually be turned around. It took far longer than Joseph probably ever wanted for things to actually come full circle and for good to come out of his suffering. But friends, I want to encourage you today, keep hanging on to hope, keep trusting in the goodness and the faithfulness of God, and know that no matter what our circumstances are, what we have responsibility for each day of our lives is choosing humility, choosing integrity. Wherever you are this morning, whoever you are, why don't you just bow your heads with me and let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us in everything that we face. God, we're greatly encouraged by the story of Joseph, that in every setback, God, you were there. You were with him. You were strengthening him. God, you were comforting him. And likewise, you are with us in every valley, every setback, every challenge that we face. You are present by your Spirit. May we be a people, Lord, who by your grace at work in our lives, Make a lifestyle and a habit of choosing humility before you and others every day. And may we be known as a people who would choose integrity. We would be faithful in the small things, faithful when no one else is watching, when no one else notices, knowing that it's the right thing to do, knowing that you always notice and you're always faithful to honour those decisions we make to do the right thing, especially when it comes at some cost. So Lord, I declare your grace and your blessing over each individual and family participating in our meeting today. May this be a year where we know you again as the God who turns setbacks into comebacks, the God for whom nothing is impossible, the God who works all things together for good. Lord, we love you and we honour you in Jesus' name. Amen.